This call is now being recorded. Steve Campbell, why don't you please tell the lovely folks on the Internet who you are? Well, thank you, Ben. I am a lecturer in the Department of History at Cal Poly Pomona. I am originally from Northern California, and I got my bachelor's degree at UC Davis in history, got a master's degree in history at CSU Sacramento, and a doctoral degree at UC Santa Barbara. You and I met on Twitter, and I am the author of The Bank War and the Partisan Press, which is a monograph of American history uh, during the Jacksonian period that examines politics, media, and finance. And that was published by the University Press of Kansas in January 2019. Awesome. And um, one of the reasons I, I wanted to talk to you um, was hopefully um, we could have a conversation on, like, where we think – uh, I guess the virus is gonna, what, what the aftermath of the virus is gonna be on our culture. But accidentally, in the last few days, I've discovered that there's this sort of a, a revolution under the surface. I, I say last few days, ever since I started talking to people, like regular folks, about, you know, what's going on with them. Mm-hmm. A lot of people just unprompted bring up the fact that they think, or I guess the theory that they think the dollar is going to melt down and that we're going to go to Bitcoin. And what's weird is they all tend to think it's in two, four, or six years. And I talked to, you were kind enough to introduce me to Bernardo uh, Lazo. I hope I said that right. Um, and I had him on the podcast, and he kind of set me right for the present day. But I don't know. My thoughts on this are evolving almost by the minute. Um, so why don't you tell my people and me some of the on-the-ground realities about living in a country back in the time where that you would have multiple currencies coming out of different banks? Sure. I like, to, I like to describe it as kind of a Byzantine mess. You know, when I'm here in California, you're in Georgia, you – I mean, we have the convenience that we can travel up to New York or Maine or Florida, Hawaii, Alaska, you know, literally distances that are thousands of miles apart, and we have one U.S. dollar that retains the same value anywhere you go. And on top of that, I think as most people know, still to this day, despite all of our problems – the U.S. dollar is still the world's reserve currency. Now, if you want to get into a discussion about whether that's going to be replaced by the remnant B or the euro or a basket of currencies, you know, we can talk about that briefly. I don't feel that I have particular expertise I, in that realm. But I don't, what I can – What I want to do is talk about the historical realities of the on, with you. I don't even know what remnant B is. <laughs> yeah, it's the, the, the Chinese yuan. Oh, it's the Chinese currency. Okay. Yeah, All it's right, just yeah. another name for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The history. So I, I was kind of talking about the dollar as uh, kind of an, an entry point that you know that's something we all understand, so that we could get into what it was like in the 1830s or the antebellum era. So you know, we have this convenient currency that everybody wants. 
Uh, it's stable. People like it. People want to buy U.S. Treasuries. These are all advantages that we have accrued in the modern period. It was very, very different in the 1830s, and 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 kind of as a historian, I'm usually the one to come out and say, well, you know, when you hear when you hear these comparisons between today and back then, uh, one that always drives me crazy is the uh, pervasive Andrew Jackson Donald Trump comparisons, uh, which you know most Jacksonian experts would would dispute. But you know, to give you a sense of what the what the currency was like. Um, in the pre-Civil War era, um, as you mentioned, there are hundreds of different state banks um, in the 1830s. They are mushrooming like crazy, and they all emit their own banknotes. So you could have, and I'm just making up a name here, you could have a, 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 a state bank in Pennsylvania, and then this that bank would emit a currency that would circulate for a radius of, I don't know, 100 miles, maybe a little bit longer than that or, or a little bit more distant than that, depending on how reputable the bank is. Then you have a different state bank in New York, and you have a state bank, uh, and not only one state bank, but multiple and, 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 and dozens and hundreds um, in all of these states, and then you travel to Louisiana. And one of the interesting features about this is that if you were in Pennsylvania – and you travel down to Georgia, uh, guess what? Uh, Your money's the, no good, basically. Yeah, well, it's not that it's no good. It's, it's, it's what <laughs> they call a discount. So if the face value of the note says $5, you're not going to be able to buy $5 worth of goods, as I'm sure you know. You might get, you know, $4.25, whatever the discount is. And that, you know, the rate at which they discount it, is going yeah. to depend on a lot of factors, the distance and the reputation of the bank and what what credit conditions are. And, uh, you know, there was a national bank, which is something that I study, uh, which was trying to propagate a uniform currency. And it did it, it, it did a decent job of it, but it was only 20% of the nation's banknotes. Um, and to kind of add one more layer of complexity to this, I would say that uh, there's a book out by uh, a historian named Joshua Greenberg, and he talks about something called shin plasters. Now, that's kind of a weird name. If you study this area, you're like, well, what the hell is a shin plaster? Um, it's, it's my understanding. You have to ask, ask him for a, a great definition, but it's my understanding that a shin plaster is a type of credit instrument. So I guess, a, you know, a bill of exchange or a note or a check, those are all credit instruments, yeah. right? A, a shin right. plaster is, is, is a credit instrument that is emitted or circulated by a kind of, I guess what you might call a private company, or there were merchant banking houses, and, you know, there were corporations, right? There, there, there are corporations today, there were corporations back then, and, and, and corporations could circulate their own currency. So um, Would that be analogous to I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. You're okay. in this area you're way more intelligent than me. Would that be analogous to like uh Bernardo, Dr. Lazo, I mean, brought up for example, G E Capital and uh G E Capital did more business than what you and I and every Joe on the street would think of as GE's uh core business, right? So that, is that analogous to that? 
Uh, somewhat. I think what Bernardo is probably talking about is a trend that has really gone on since the 1970s and 80s that's called financialization. So okay. usually when I, when, when I hear GE Capital, what comes to mind is that, you know, when you and I think of GE and kind of growing up or when our, when our parents' generation were growing up, you know, you thought, well, GE, General Electric, you know, they make light bulbs or other, other things than electricity, utilities and whatnot. But, you know, now you get these companies that they're not just – that's not even the most of what they do. That's probably only a small part of what they do. If they're – you know, GE Capital, if I had to guess, they're probably selling all kinds of debt and complex credit instruments and, and yeah, just kind of skimming this money, skimming profits uh, off, of, off of the rest of us because they've, they're engaged in financialization. Right. And I, I mean, when you, for example, like when you dive into Amazon, it's really amazing how much, how little of their money is actually tied up in, you know, retail, um, be it food or, or whatever. Most of it's actually tied up in skimming off the internet, essentially. Um, right, right. Uh, there's one more factor I, I think that I should mention it because it's a, a topic that has interests me a, a little bit is that in the 19th century and all the way up until 1970, I, I listened a bit to Bernardo's interview. He talked about it is that our currency was backed by a commodity. Uh, it varied. The exchange rate varied based on the time you're looking at. But, you know, in the old days, you could take a, a dollar and exchange it into gold. It was tied to gold, right? And every currency right. in the world was tied to gold. The, the German Deutschmark, the British pound, they were all backed by gold. And the theory was of these classic political economists is that you needed that. If you didn't if you didn't back it by gold, if you didn't tie it to some commodity, then um you know, it would it would become unstable and banks would, would print too many paper dollars and we would have inflation and you know, next thing you know we're turning into Zimbabwe or, or Germany in the 1920s. And so uh, occasionally, right. to, occasionally to this day, you get debates over going back to a gold standard. And that's something I've looked into. It's, um, you know, again, I don't, I don't have a lot of expertise in Bitcoin, but if I could make a, a similarity, if I had to guess off the top of my head, a lot of the people who like Bitcoin, uh, they're probably running in the same crowd as some of these investments and day traders who want to go back to the gold standard. It's common among libertarians. It's common among libertarians and billionaires. Now, why is that? Um, well, billionaires want to go back to a gold standard because the chief kind of benefit of a gold standard is to have uh, what is known as 0% inflation. Uh, prices would not be going up at all, and in some cases you have deflation. Now, anybody that has wealth is going to think of that as a good situation. And why is that? It's because, well, the yeah, value... Yeah, there seems to be a finite number of dollars, essentially, under a gold standard. Yeah, and, exactly. Right. So yeah. If, you, if you already have money, you like that situation because the value of your money is going to um, increase over time. So the you know people who are creditors... They often like a, 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 a gold standard. It's the people who are in debt, um, and quite honestly, most of us are in debt, whether it's credit card debt or student loan debt, uh, mortgage debt. Um, 
we don't like that situation. We want uh, prices to rise by about 2%. It honestly could be 4% every year. So most uh, debtors, you know, people who borrow money, people who have money to pay back, they like a situation that is not the gold standard. They want uh, what is called a, uh, a fiat currency environment. Now, let me just say that the first question that people ask is, well, um, you know, if a dollar is not backed by gold, then how is it that um, it's going to retain any value? Well, there's a couple really important factors I'll point out. One is, again, we live in the United States, despite all of our problems, which I'd be happy to talk about. Um, still to this day, the United States has a reputation of uh, stability. You know, we've had the same uh, constitution since 1789. Uh, it's the oldest constitution in the world. Uh, we have the greatest military and still the greatest economy, at least by the numbers. So for all those reasons, Americans have advantage. People want to buy U.S. Uh, Treasury dollars. So that's point number one is confidence in the system. People have confidence in the U.S. dollar. They have confidence in our ability to repay all of our debts if we really needed to. Uh, we could pay all of our – you know, we could raise taxes to the point that – um, you know, we could just pay off all of our debts. But the other thing is, um, I guess I've been kind of alluding to it already, is that uh, the dollar is used to pay taxes. If, if you have a currency that is legal tender, that by law people are supposed to accept it for all public debts, then yeah. that automatically gives value to that currency. Um, oh. And just one quick anecdote, and then I'll, I'll kind of finish up this uh, – brief discussion about the gold standard is they they surveyed um, this is something I like to show my students they surveyed about 40 different economists from the best colleges not only in the country but in the entire world so you're thinking of you know a Stanford University economist uh, Oxford UC Berkeley Yale Harvard etc cetera, etc cetera. you know it's the most brilliant minds and they asked all 40 of them would you go back yeah. to a gold standard and none of them said yes there were various responses. Some people were, you know, absolutely 100% opposed to the idea. Uh, but then, you know, some people were like, well, you know, I'm not crazy on the idea. It probably wouldn't work, but, you know, it's it's an interesting idea. But there was one comment. They they asked these economists in this, in this survey, you know, uh, how do you vote on this question? And then do you have any comments to add? And one guy uh, was an economist named Richard Thaler. And he said, you know, why back the dollar by gold? Why not 1982 Bordeaux wine? And he's trying to make a joke. I personally find that funny because the point <laughs> he's trying to make there is that, you know, right. you don't need to back it by anything. It, 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 you know, why not back it by soy or cotton or oil? Um, you know, gold, despite the fact that it has historically had value in all these ancient civilizations, at the end of the day, you know, gold is something you have to mine out of the ground. It's just some arbitrary commodity. It really just doesn't make sense in the modern age to have to back your uh, currency by any commodity. Well, right. And I'm, I'm, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm going to flip some cards over. I, I got to tell you, um, what's amazing to me is that I, so many people, apropos of nothing, if we talk long enough, we'll bring this up. And I think it's partly a symptom of 
oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, we all lived through a swan, a black swan event. One, one's going to come around next week, I'm sure. You know, and also, um, everybody who's not five can remember when the world was different and phones didn't used to do something or computers didn't used to do something or whatever. And so we all just think that computers are going to get to a moment where you can just pay for your, you know, whatever with Bitcoin. And my thing is, like, you know, Bernardo says it best. In order for people to go to Bitcoin, something has to happen. There's uh-huh. going to be a thing that happens. And I don't know what that is, and you don't know what that is, and nobody knows what that is. Right? <laughs> but also, I mean, like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's where I am. But uh, Sure, I mean, it it could happen. I, I Let me try to break up something that I think is often talked about that, I think is relevant to this discussion is, you know, Ben, do you, you talk to a lot of people who are always predicting catastrophe and the imminent collapse of the U S dollar, you know, uh, these kind of, uh, there's words for them. You can call them bond vigilantes or you can call them never cry wolf. Uh, and it's just, well, that's idea. What... you know, they're always predicting catastrophe. And I remember this back in 2008, you remember 2008 and how bad that I was do. when, yeah, I mean everybody does. When <laughs> Lehman Brothers collapsed, uh, September two thousand eight, it was it was right before the election. You know, we're in election season right now, and people are looking at the polls all the time. If you actually look at the numbers between Obama and McCain, it was a fairly close race up until September. Uh, but when the you know what hits the fan, and you know, literally capitalism is on the brink of a precipice. And we feel like, uh, you know, I remember people talking about, you know, we're not going to be able to get cash out of our ATMs anymore, and China's going to take it over. There were a lot of predictions of imminent catastrophe, right? And, you know, as an educator and somebody who, who tries to think about things reasonably and rationally and with some degree of logic, uh, it does it doesn't mean that I can't be emotional too. It doesn't mean that I'm always correct. Uh, certainly, I'm not. But you know, it's it's kind of in those situations when when educators have to kind of calm people down and say, well, this is how it works, and you know, no, you know, even if the dollar kind of stops being the world's reserve currency, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. Um. So yeah, I guess I I, I just want to say there's a lot of people who get on television and you know they're fake oil salesmen and they're not professional economists and they're always kind of predicting uh you know put your money into gold things like that and reverse mortgages and uh you know a lot of these things are scams uh so you really have to you really have to worry about that and you know for you know for somebody like me who's a kind of a trained historian and I, i i always like to point people in the in the direction of kind of the academic studies in in my dream, in my dream episode of this podcast, there's actually a guy that I want to have you on the podcast with because he does a lot of studies into um, people who believe the Earth is flat and stuff. Uh-huh. My dream episode would be the two would be the three of us talking about like who America is beyond the spotlight or beyond whatever, because 
Oh my God, I think I just think we could go on forever. But I did want to um, move move the uh, podcast over to uh, basically this. In the good old days, used to be a history podcast exclusively. Sure. And I did want to talk about. So, when did you hear about COVID? Um, and or would you rather talk about the fires first? I mean, uh, we kind of we get into the fires. Yeah, it's been in the news uh, a lot. You know, I'm out here in California. I I, I understand yeah. you had a you had another guest from Northern California. Y- y'all are pretty much in the same area, actually. Um, yeah, and she sent me a picture, uh, a, a map of how big this fire was that she could literally almost see from her house, and it was it just looked terrifying, literally yeah. terrifying. <laughs> so right, yeah. So yeah, I mean, there, yeah, there's 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 lots that I could talk about with the with the fires, but I mean, is there? A direct question that you had that well, you wanted to kind of guide. I well, okay. Um, I haven't actually. I'm trying to wrestle with how to put her podcast on the internet, um, like how to cut what. But why don't we? Okay, so I live in what is essentially a rainforest. So yeah. m- literally, it's. I think they call it something. It's not a tropical rainforest. Some kind of, I think, Colombian. Is that a term? I don't know. Uh, temperate but, rainforest? Yeah. Literally, I live right down the highway from one of the wettest spots in North America. Literally. Right. So my concept of a forest fire is not your concept of a forest fire. Absolutely. So, yeah. So why don't so, we talk I mean, about the scale first? Yeah, absolutely. So I think for a lot of your listeners who might be in various points of the United States or even abroad – I don't know if people have been to California. You know, I I am California born and bred. I will I will talk your ear off for hours about California, so I'll try to stay uh focused, you know, and 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 kind of fo- focus on the fire. But the thing about California that's unique. There's a lot of things that are unique about California. But when you're talking about the environment and the climate, right? We have a Mediterranean climate. So it takes that name from the original Mediterranean. So our climate is like Spain and Italy and other countries in the Mediterranean. Um, and if you look on maps of the world, this, this Mediterranean environment exists in only a few narrow bands. It's a really rare environment. It's, it's not like a rainforest. It's not like the Siberian taiga. What a Mediterranean climate means is that you get rain pretty much only in the wintertime. And that is pretty rare for most Americans because most Americans live, and I think most people in the world, live where you get summer rain. But basically the rainy season in California, you get a little bit more rain in Northern California than you do in Southern California. I'm I'm here and speaking to you from Southern California where my job is, but I, I grew up in – Northern California, I've, I've been to pretty much every part of the state. The rainy season in California only lasts from about November to, I would say, April. And some, some seasons are better than, than the other. So all the way from April until November, you get months and months and months where it just never rains. Now, you do get enough rain in those winter months so that you can have vegetation, right? I mean, there are forests 
in California. It's not, it's not a desert. It's not like Nevada or parts of Arizona. Um, some parts of it are, but you know, so the point I'm making is that this Mediterranean climate, you get very hot, dry heat of, you know, a hundred degrees or higher. And, and of course those average temperatures have all been going up because of human caused climate change. Um, and you get periods of drought. So, you know, for people that are reading the news and thinking about what's going on in California, you know, what a, what a disaster. Well, you get these forest fires. Now, I should say that historically, California has always had forest fires. That's part of that Mediterranean climate. It's, it's, a, it's a characteristic of a Mediterranean climate that you will get forest fires. Now, a lot of climate deniers will say, well, you know, California has always had forest fires. You know, what's the problem? This isn't a big deal. Well, not like this, okay? So when you, when you talk to your other guest and you talk to me and you want to get a sense of how bad it is, let me just give a figure to kind of put it in context. The amount of acres that have burned this year, and this season, 2020, is, is the worst by far. It is the worst fire season on record in, in all of California's history. It is getting close to 4 million acres. Okay? Let that sink in for a moment. Um, that is about five times the size of Rhode Island. Okay, so Rhode Island times Jeez. five. Yeah. It's wow. a huge amount, it's a huge <laughs> amount of territory. Uh, most of it this year has occurred in Northern California. Um, so I got off the phone with my parents yesterday who are, who are in Napa where all the wine is. So poor, uh, poor Napa County and Mendocino County and Sonoma County and all these areas that are north of San Francisco, they have just had the worst luck in recent years. And, um, you've got all this vegetation that has built up, uh, over the years that, that hasn't burned in decades. Okay, so the fact that you're getting summers that have um, become longer and drier and hotter, that creates conditions that make the virus worse. Um, you've got uh, kind of due to various forest management um, issues and, and related to people buying homes and um, kind of what a lot of the environmental community wants. You've got this vegetation that is built up, and it's a it's a tinderbox, um, and so these these fires become more devastating and devastating. And and here's the problem: I think if we wanted to manage it better, I was actually talking with somebody on Twitter about this. If we wanted to prevent these devastating fires that go on and on and on for weeks, weeks on end, and it it seems like they're just disaster scenarios. What you would want to do is have controlled burnings every once in a while, right? I'm sure you've heard of this. Um, you know, if you, I think if you, I have a, I'm, I don't mean to interrupt, but just uh, I have a cousin that's like in his 60s or something, you know, and he had he grew up in California, and he said that when he was a boy, uh, they still had people like Native Americans, I guess. Or people related to Native Americans living in the living in the forests or whatever, 
Yeah. And they would still, they would do the burns like in ancient times. Sure. They still did that. And and they don't do it anymore because those people either moved on or died out or what have you. Yeah, he's he's um, absolutely right. Yeah, we do have a record of that. Uh, Native Americans in California did implement controlled burns. I, I could be wrong about this, but I think one of the reasons they did that is that animals would flee and that, you know, once you lit a fire, you know, the the game that you were hunting would flee and then it would make it easier to hunt the yeah. game. But they, but they also understood, you know, the Native Americans also understood the whole conservation angle of it. You know, if you want to, you know, uh, as, as, as a lot of people know, there are certain types of species. I, I don't know which ones they are specifically, but there are, there are trees that only, uh, I guess, hatch their seedlings or reproduce due to a forest fire. So they have literally evolved in that environment to accommodate those settings. Yeah. Um, but, but the control burning, I mean, if you, if you go to, if you go to these various national parks, like there's Yosemite is the worldwide famous one, but you know, there's other less known national parks in California, like uh, Kings Canyon or Sequoia. If you go to these parks, right. And I've been there kind of growing up, you will, you will see um, kind of sections of the park that are cordoned off. They're closed off from the public, and they'll put up a sign that says controlled burning. You know, they're, they're, they're doing that on purpose because it's, it's a way to, to manage the fire. It's, it's, it's part of making that ecosystem healthy, right? I mean, because if you let it go for decades and decades and decades without burning, you know, this is the, this is the result you get. So, but you know the the amount of yeah. that are that are national parks um, is is small. So they you know they can't do that. And here's the let me just throw in a couple other problems uh, that that contribute to this. Um, okay. Because you know because I I, I just want to kind of uh, I want to make sure that I cover all my bases and make sure that it's not one thing. Like if if you were to ask me, well, what's causing the fires? Um, does it all come down to climate change? No, climate change is not the only factor. There are a bunch of factors that create the fires. But we do know, you know, we have tons and tons of scientific evidence that, um, you know, we know that climate change is making it worse. People want to people wanna buy homes in these kind of rural areas where there's lots of forest. So if you're trying to control burn – you almost can't do that because if the winds automatically shift and the winds are unpredictable, you might endanger people's property. And then you get into a situation of destruction of property and insurance companies don't want that. And so it becomes a whole mess. So there's a lot of areas that they can't just implement controlled burns, um, which is really sad because I, yeah, as, as I've been indicating, if you, implemented these controlled burns, it would make these fires a lot devastating. But they but they can't do it because of their homes. And, you know, California has almost right. 40 million people. Um, it kind of has too many people. So as, as, as property values in L.A. and San Francisco become super expensive, what does that do? I mean, people start moving out to the, uh, to the rural areas, and they develop these insanely long commutes. So that's bad for the environment because – you know, they're commuting hours and hours every day. 
but they're but they're building houses yeah. now into into the mountains. And so so there's the problem with the mountains. And then just real quick, I'll I'll point out another factor, which is um, I was just looking this up because I knew we were going to talk about this. I looked up an article from a few years ago uh, about PG&E. PG&E stands for Pacific Gas and Electric. It's one of the major utility companies uh, in, in, in Northern California. And Pacific Gas and Electric, uh, kind of because, like most companies, they only care about the next quarter's stock prices and they don't like abiding by regulations and safety precautions and they're just very greedy people, right? PG&E did not um, take as many safety precautions as they should have. They weren't um, inspecting their power lines. So what contributed to this 2017-2018 uh, fire that was really devastating in Napa County was uh, – PG, it, it was basically a downed power line from PG&E. Okay, so so that that can be right. another factor that contributes. To, and and believe me, people in California sued the hell out of PG&E. And and I don't know. Didn't they have to go bankrupt? Yes, I believe they did. Okay, so oh. good. So yeah, you're following that stuff. I mean, uh, yeah, I, no, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I haven't, I haven't, I haven't followed. I haven't picked up on the latest of it um but but yeah i don't know i didn't i don't know if that i mean i think i read that in the la times a while back um but they actually went bankrupt right right or they were trying to i don't know there's something exactly yeah right (laughs) something was not normal (laughs) right so i mean honestly as, as as a californian this is really tough to see it's tough to experience because you know you've not only got the pandemic, which has been going on since March, but you've got, yeah. um, you know, it's, it, it's such a strange phenomenon to see ash in the air. You know, it's like, you know, pe- people who live near volcanoes, they get ash every once in a while and it's scary and it has to force all the people to flee. Well, we get, we get ash in the air and particles and just stuff that's super unhealthy for you. Um, you know, due to these forest fires. And so one of the things that we check, I don't know if you ever check this, you probably don't have any reason to uh, because you get plenty of rain, but we check the uh, the air quality index, the AQI. And, you know, <laughs> if it's like below 50, you know, you can go outside and have a good time, no problem. But if it gets above that, you you know, you get these really hot days where the uh, the atmosphere is stagnant, you're not getting any fresh air. And so all the pollutants from L.A., you know, you've got 20 million people or whatever living in Southern California. All the pollutants are going to build up, and, and, and you get these days every once in a while, uh, particularly east of where I live, closer to San Bernardino and Riverside. And they just tell the people, you know, <laughs> do not go outside. Don't, don't let your kids play soccer outside because the air quality is just awful. And, and – you know, unfortunately, the fires make these things worse. We get um, – we have uh, air quality – I don't think they call it that, but it might be the same thing. We have, like, smog warnings and smog stuff, um, I know. But – because we don't – Atlanta is nowhere close to an ocean. So, like right. – 
and actually like it'll the the uh i guess from the cars and stuff it won't um doesn't really have anywhere to go too much i mean it does go but it doesn't go fast enough basically and plus like over top of that like we have all these all these grasses and trees and things and stuff and so you know oak pollen and and uh you know pollution mixes together and it's just a wonderful time just saying and um but yeah we don't have when i saw that video uh, there was a video i saw of a town in oregon or washington one literally burning up in like five or ten minutes and i was like oh damn that's, yeah. that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 yeah. really unfortunate. I mean, and 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 one of the things is is uh, they you know they give a name to all these fires, right? And so the the one that was closest to me recently, about two or three weeks ago, the air was really bad, and that was a fire that erupted in the mountains. I think they call it the San Gabriel Mountains, north of north of L.A. And this fire was going on for. Uh, you know, several weeks on end, and I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of looking the news, and I'm I'm going to these websites, and they tell you what percentage of the fire is contained, right? So, uh, and I kept checking it every day, and it, and it said it's only five percent contained, and days and days and days would go by, and it kept saying, you know, five percent contained, and admittedly not having expertise in how this works. I was like, well, what's going on? You know, are, are, are the firefighters not doing their jobs? And it's like, well, just basic intuition would say no. It's, it's not that they're not doing their jobs. I'm sure they're exhausted. You know, they're, they're working as hard as they can. One of the problems is, is that the, um, you know, there's so many fires. So you bring up Oregon and Washington, you know, they're bringing in firefighters from like Montana and Idaho. I mean, there are just so many fires that, all the firemen in all the counties all throughout California, they are all overextended. So this Bobcat fire that was going on, they didn't they didn't have the maximum number of firefighters to fight this that they wanted. And why was that the case? Because there were other firefighters fighting up in Napa. So that just made it difficult. And then finally, you know, they, they did a better job once the weather conditions improved, but you know, you got to understand when there's low humidity and the winds are shifting at night, uh, and that was compounded by the fact that these firefighters were working at high elevation. These really steep mountains and valleys uh, just made it extremely, extremely difficult uh, to contain. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really uh, it's not it's not a it's not a good situation. No, it do, it doesn't sound it at all, man. Um, all right. So fundamentally, this is a, a history podcast. So I wanted to ask you um, some questions about COVID, and mm-hmm. not exactly about COVID, just your experience of it. And I guess my first question I want to ask. I'm gonna I'm gonna reverse the order a little bit, um, because everybody now mostly says no and then they think about it and they are uh so my my first question and this one stuck snuck up on me a lot was um are you missing any people that you maybe not your friends but your 
your coworkers, people you see at the deli or the restaurants or, or whatever. Um, are they are they kind of MIA? And I'm asking because, yeah, go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, the answer is yes. I mean, absolutely. And I, I think to kind of explain why that is, especially from my point of view, um, because I live by myself. I think maybe if I had a family and, you know, kids around the house, it might be different. I, I, you know, might be kind of missing those people. Yeah, but, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I, I miss going to campus and seeing my coworkers. No, I don't mean, I don't mean like, like you missed it. I mean like they're not there. Like you're going places and they should be there. Like I'll give you an example. Uh, there's a woman I talked to on my podcast that, uh, she's like, you know, 80% of her apartment building is MIA. Oh, right. Um, yeah, it's gotten a little bit better. I think, I think the kind of scary times, I don't know if this is quite what you're asking, but I, you know, when you, when you bring up COVID and when did, when did COVID first hit? I, I remember going to the grocery store in, uh, I guess March, second or third week of March and just seeing these disastrously long lines. But okay, so your question was, are there people that are MIA? Like a little bit. I mean, like the freeways, um, you know, LA is kind of notorious for traffic as, as is Atlanta, but you're probably not going to experience as much traffic. That's, that's my sense. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going out a ton. Like I'm not getting in my car to freaking drive places for a bunch of reasons, but one of them is COVID. But, you know, it's yeah. my understanding that, that traffic is a, is a little bit lighter. Um, you know, in my particular town, They've sort of opened up the businesses and like the restaurants, like they're, they're having outdoor dining. And so outdoor, of course, is better than indoor. I, I think it's probably still risky. Some people wear masks. Some people don't. Um, me personally, I, I, I wish they would all be wearing masks, even, even if they are kind of outside, if, if they're, if they're congregating, if, if you're getting people close together. But yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly not back to normal. I mean, if you walk into any sort of downtown area and you think like, well, this is the energy of the city and, you know, on a normal day, you know, whatever whatever you expect normal to be, it would be bustling and there would be these people and walking around, you know, walking their dogs in the park and whatever. I mean, it certainly um, <clears throat> feels like those, levels are are still down and depressed yeah it certainly does um okay and this is a question um so did you say when you became aware of covid first off like i feel like because i know this question has been asked to some folks and um i feel like i was kind of late to it I don't know. I, I, I know it was in March. I know kind of like the middle of March because I was, I was in the semester and at Cal Poly Pomona where I teach, uh, this last spring semester was pretty, you know, disastrous. It was kind of, yeah. uh, we had to, we, we had to drop everything we were doing and convert to online. And I remember that as sort of the second or third week of March. And it kind of happened quickly. Um, 
I don't recall there being much of an issue. You know, I might I might have heard about this in the news and and heard about stories that, you know, hey, there's this virus and it's affecting Europe and now we've noticed it in the US and we gotta be careful. Yeah. But um I don't I don't recall it, it really becoming an issue that, that affected your life directly until until March. You know, I wanna say about the second or second or third week of March. Well, and I don't know if you keep up with this, but that's about when the NBA buttoned up, uh, I think on March 14th. And I mean, I've talked to people, um, who say they got something in December or January, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, like this thing was around. I'm, I'm sure it was around here, here being Georgia by December. Yeah. At the, you know, at the latest. Um, now let me ask you, this is a question I have been dying to ask you. What do you think, um, how do you think COVID is going to change our country, like our society or, or whatever? Well, I mean, it, 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 it already has. Um, I guess you're, you're thinking about long term? Like how, oh yeah. How, how is it going to yeah, yeah. change? Well, I mean it's. I mean, gosh, I mean there, there there's so many ways that you could. You could take that question. I mean, I guess for one thing, certain businesses are, are going to die out. I mean, if they were on the brink of. Collapse beforehand, um, I don't know specifically what those are, but uh, yeah, I mean, I've been, reading here and there in the news that. You know, your Fortune 500, your, your big kind of blue chip companies are doing fine, you know, fine. They've, and, and, and even more than fine. They're, uh, they're prospering right. because they've gotten an injection of money from the Fed and stock buybacks and tax cuts and all these things. But, you know, I think small businesses are struggling. I think, uh, actors and actresses I know are, are kind of having a tough time. Waitresses, bartenders. Uh, so that aspect of it has changed. I, I think there's definitely an interesting discussion to be had about what's going to happen to higher ed. You know, and I, yeah, right. I mean, that people have been predicting the kind of slow death of universities. I, I, I guess here and there, I'll, I'll, I'll see articles. You know, talking about these small liberal arts colleges in like New England, like Middlebury College or something, or I I might have gotten that name wrong. Um, if you can you know, do they, Zoom, I mean, if you can have a Zoom with, okay, like in my own life, right? Something yeah. I actually did. If I can have a, a Zencaster with like one of the world's most preeminent fintech people, right? Uh-huh. What's stopping what is stopping him from being able to teach classes? Well, okay, that's Literally. a great discussion. Yeah, and you know so what I'm saying? I, like so, Yeah, yeah, I do, of course. And and I we've been we've been thinking about this for years and, and as somebody like myself, I, I I went into teaching. I made all these sacrifices to get all the student loan debt to get my PhD, uh, which I don't recommend by the way for anybody. Today, if you're if you're somebody who's a 
graduate student and you're thinking about, well, do I want to, you know, go get a PhD in history and try to become a professor? My, my advice is probably not. And I know it's tough to say you don't want to kill anybody's dreams, but I, I ultimately get a new dream. You know, that's, yeah, yeah. That's what I would say. Get a new dream. <laughs> right. And you don't want to kill anybody's dreams, but you, you have to be realistic. And I, I, I see it as an ethical decision. And I look at it that the fact is that if, that, that if you want to become a professor, chances are it's, it's well over a majority. I think it's 60 or 70 percent, uh, depending on the study you check. But the overwhelming majority of college professors in the United States are what is known as contingent faculty. That means they are not on the tenure track. They either don't have tenure or they don't have a chance of getting a tenure track job. So contingent faculty is sort of an, an umbrella term that includes people like myself, who is a lecturer. Uh, it includes freeway flyers or adjuncts, VAPs or visiting assistant professors. So that is, that is most tell of the me, Tell me what a freeway flyer is. A freeway flyer is, I'm sure this happens in Atlanta, it's somebody who just like um, to kind of make ends meet, they have to teach at a whole bunch of different colleges. So, you know, you teach one class at one school on Monday morning, you hop in your car, you jump on the freeway, and you commute 20 miles to another campus. You know, whether it's you're teaching two classes at a community college, and then you're stringing together three classes at a state school and then maybe one class at a research one university in the area. And that is the lifestyle for an alarming number of professors. And because that, that sort of freeway flyer lifestyle, and, and by the way, universities do this deliberately. They often don't have health care. Those adjunct freeway flyers, they don't have access to retirement accounts. Or if they do, they're usually pretty minimal. Uh, the, the state is not contributing a lot to them. And so it's a, it's a very unsettling lifestyle. And, and unfortunately, uh, one of the issues, it's not the only issue, but one of the issues is that there's a supply and demand problem. Okay, so here's, here's how it works. Um, it, if I have my numbers correct through memory, they produce about a thousand PhDs in history every year. So then the question becomes, are there a thousand uh, tenure track history jobs available in universities? In 2007, we were very close to parity. So it was about a one-to-one ratio. And that was the first year I entered graduate school. In my, and well, I, I had a master's at that point, but, that, but, but 2007 was when I moved to Santa Barbara and enrolled in a PhD program. And then that, and then, and then the year later, you know, it all went downhill. And here's the problem. If you look at the economy and you look at like GDP, you know, President Trump and other, other people like to tout GDP numbers and say, well, you know, the economy has been recovering and we've had the, the longest recovery on record. Guess what? Guess what, Ben? Academia. Academia, especially in the humanities, never recovered from the Great Recession. You're like a you know recovery. What? You know, you know what, what recovery are you talking about? There has been more right. adjunctification. I came across stories. When I was researching this topic, 
I came across stories of adjunct professors. Okay, we're talking about people yeah. with PhDs, right. people who had publications, people who were brilliant, brilliant scholars and teachers at the same time, who yeah. were living in cars. They literally right. could not afford their rent. So, I actually like one of the things that I tell my friends is like my Twitter feed is like academics and like sports mostly. I think there's yeah. a couple smart Alex on there, but it's mainly academics and sports. And my thing is, like, my Twitter feed is an excellent advertisement for um, basically trade schools. I'm for real. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, I, I've read some heartbreaking stories that are just. So I mean, I mean, oh you know, yeah, as, as this as this adjunctification has gone on, you know, and that's I, I should clarify that this is this is part of the whole trend in academia, it's, it's something that I like to resist, and you could probably tell that in my voice, that, I mean, I, I do not think this is a good direction. I, I think it needs to be reversed. I, I think it needs to go back to the way it was, let's say, pre-1970s. Pre-1970s, um, college was a lot more affordable. It was close to free in California. I mean, I mean California yeah. used to have, it was part of the California Master Plan of New Dealer, Pat Brown who was Jerry Brown's father, is to make uh, the University of California system and the Cal State system free of tuition. So since then, uh, tuition has gone up. We've begun to treat students more like customers rather than apprentices to be trained. So that's, that's part of this dynamic. We have increased the number of administrators exponentially. Okay, so, so, so the joke you'll see, the kind of snide remark you'll see on Twitter is that, well, you know, they're not hiring any more historians of modern Europe or ancient Rome or whatever your subfield is. But meanwhile, the same university is hiring eight administrators and what they call deanlets. Or oh, like I've got deans. Yeah, you know. I've, I've got an actual, I don't mean to interrupt, but I've got an actual, like, this is a real, thing that I really saw. You've got, okay, you've got a, a, a university that shall remain nameless. They've got a, uh, they've got a, uh, basically a, uh, what do you call it? Like a classified section or for lack of a better term. Yeah. Um, you've got the math professor making 20K, something like that. Yeah. You've got the head of, then they're also hiring a uh was it a it was a cook and the cook's making 24 right right the, right. the cook's making 24 wait a minute okay the the plumber the plumber which that's a you know I've got an uncle that was a plumber but the plumber's making i think at least double what the professor was making but here's the part that blows my mind the the uh, the head of the LGBTQ student union was making uh, four times what the math professor was making. So let's put that in real world terms here. Right, right. The guy who the guy or gal who's going to be in charge of the LGBTQ student union is making four times what what the math professor that the gay kid is actually there to be a part of right 
You know, I mean, here's, you know, you were saying you need, you think it's going to go back to, you, it needs to go back to the way it was. Here's what I really think is going to happen, right? Here's uh-huh. what I actually think is going to happen. I honestly think you're going to get these parents going to um, the companies and and saying to companies, train my child. Train, train my child. Right. Train my child to do this job and pay my kids something, right? <laughs> Honest <Yeah>. to God. <laughs> well, and and here's the thing. Coming from the standpoint of a humanities professor, you know, and humanities, depending on your definition, it varies in different countries. It usually includes um, religious studies, philosophy, drama, acting, theater, and and history, art history, things like that. Those have all been in deep trouble. English, writing, uh Mm-hmm. And they've been in deep trouble for a lot of reasons, but you're, you know, you brought up parents and it made me think of the fact, look, if you're going to make college a business and students have to go into thousands and thousands of dollars of debt just to get the minimum requirement nowadays, which is, which is a bachelor's degree, they're not going to choose the major that they want to pursue for fun. They're going to choose the major that they think will get them a good job. Now, here's the thing, you know, history, those with history bachelor's degrees are doing okay in terms of salary. You know, they may not start off making it much, but if you look at the statistics, in the long run, history majors are doing okay. So it's not like history is a bad major. But, you know, in the 1960s, about 6% of undergrads were history majors. Now it's down to 1% or 2%, okay? So if you see that all these trends that I'm describing – are part of this broader trend of the privatization of the university. Some people call this neoliberalism. Now, a few moments ago, you were you were talking about, well, why not teach a class from home? Online learning, that's another trend. So as all these trends are happening, more tuition, more student loan debt, more administrators, uh, professors with PhDs who are scholars are now exploited and treated like cheap labor, uh, the football coach, is the highest paid employee. All these trends are going on at the same time, right, at universities, which shows you, by the way, that the priorities of universities are way, way out of whack, right? I mean, what is the job of a university? It's to train, to educate people. But if you're paying the football coach... More than you're paying... Yeah, yeah, right. If if, uh, uh, years and years ago, it was was Jeff Tedford. I think he was uh, the UC Berkeley... Uh, football coach. He he was the highest. You know, you can look this up online. It's all it's all public record. Uh, he was the highest paid public employee in in California, a huge state. You know that that shows a major major misalignment of priorities. So, but kind of going back to your question about online learning, here's the thing: like Silicon Valley types and people like Bill Gates. You know, people who don't like education and think that professors have these cushy jobs, which, by the way, I, I don't think anybody who's saying that probably has never talked to a professor if they think that professors have easy jobs. Um, but all these Silicon Valley types who want to implement all online learning, um, you know, the students don't like it and the professors don't like it. At the end of the day, we don't find it to be a satisfying experience. Now, I'm just speaking for myself here. If you were to uh, – kind of 
do a poll of all university professors, um, you might find some who would say, oh, I think online learning is great. And I do want to say it does provide some benefits for students with disabilities or, you know, your sort of person who has a 40-hour-a-week job and wants to take, like, classes at night but, but can't, you know, doesn't have access to a car. Um, so online learning can be a benefit, but is it going to replace the traditional classroom? I don't think it will right away. And as a professor, from my point of view, I sure as hell hope not because I don't find it satisfying. It's it's not why I – it's not what gets, gets me up in the morning, right? I mean, if, if you were to if you were to want to ask me like like what when am I at my best and thriving in my career, it's to you know um, get into the physical classroom. You know, I right. uh, here's the thing is like like when the pandemic hit, uh, I thought about it for a second. I was like, well, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be more productive, right? Because I'm gonna work from home. And I don't have a commute, and I'm not going to be distracted by things that are worse. But you know, when you're at home, you just find other things to do. It's not, it's not like your it's not like your productivity goes up that much, if at all. In fact, in fact, I would I would wager that a lot of people's productivity has has has, has gone down because it's it's something about going into a physical classroom and just the energy of it that is invigorating. We're just conditioned. And, we, for better or worse, you know, we we are literally conditioned to 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 compartmentalize home from from work. I mean, yeah, I know our ancestors didn't necessarily do that, but you know, we've been compart we've been conditioned to do that. Right. And what I you know what I see around here is I'm looking at these cars that haven't left driveways in weeks right you know except to go to the store or whatever and i'm going all right the the big growth industry later is going to be we need to retrofit these houses with the uh-huh. super duper high speed mega internet right and all like that but i'm just kind of you know i think we're on the cusp of something like something huge technologically or or whatever you know you know what i'm saying yeah. um anyway well gosh i could talk to you forever but um you probably have things to do um is there anything you would like to tell the internet i asked that to all of my guests is there anything you'd like to tell the internet well um that's a good question what what should i say about that um you know, before I forget, I I really appreciate the invitation. I'm I'm honored to uh appear on your podcast. Um you know, it's it's just we're we're recording this in very early October uh twenty twenty. You know, we got an election coming up. Um, it's a very troubling time in our country. And in the world, but but I think especially in the United States, uh, there are there are divisions. I mean, I, I don't I don't pretend to have an immediate answer because you know any any sort of complex problem is 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 not going to have a simple answer to it. 
But I, I, I hope we get through this, this kind of period we're in. I mean, I mean, 2020 has just been awful. Oh, it feels yeah. like it, 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 it feels like every, you know, every three days there's a, uh, a major showstopper of a, of an event. June was a hell of a decade, wasn't it? <laughs> which which one? June was a hell of a decade. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. So uh, you know, I hope we I hope we get through this. It's it's just been tough on a lot yeah. of people. A lot of, a lot of people are experiencing anxiety and depression. So yeah. So so you asked me earlier about you know what's what's going to happen because of COVID. I I I would be curious about what what's happening in the field of psychology. You know, what's what's happening to like yeah. therapists and counselors and um people who who prescribe antidepressants. You know, is that is that going through the roof? I I don't know. Have you have you heard is that well, is a lot of, is a lot of that skyrocketing? I tell you something that I would not have picked up on had I not been talking to regular humans. Um, which I believe it or not, I consider you also a regular human. Um, but what I would not have figured out was that there are just so many people, like a ton of people all over this country that are, they, you know, I think we're learning that as long as you, as long as you're gonna live in a world of global trade and, and, Let's all get in airplanes and fly everywhere and blah, 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 right? As long as we're going to live in this world, you need to have, um, trying to be, okay. Like everybody's kind of thinking, you know, I know people bring up Ebola directly and they say, well, 10 people died of Ebola. And that's what I thought this was going to be. Yeah. You know, like 10 people die of this and we go about our lives. And, People, I think, are really starting to rethink everything about society, like everything. Right. Um, and be they Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, Communists, <laughs> people voting yeah. for the for the space rock. Yeah, I I, I think that uh, uh, you know we were talking about fires earlier. I mean, believe it or not, the California wildfires. Uh, is somewhat related to the same story as the pandemic. Now you might be thinking, well, well, how are they connected? Uh, you know, it was human populations in China, uh, that were penetrating further and further into the kind of natural environment there. And they started eating bats or whatever. I, I, I don't know. I probably shouldn't get into that. Yeah, yeah, the the wrong, the wrong bat and the wrong pig met each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 human destruction of the environment. Climate change is not going away. I mean, I'll I'll tell you something, Ben. That's really depressing. I mean, I'm a I'm a I'm a millennial, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm one of the older millennials. I was born in the ni- in the early 1980s. There are yeah. millennials that don't want to have children. Mm-hmm. And what and and why do you think that is? I mean, economically. Because of climate change. Yeah, of climate exactly. Change. See, you, you knew yeah. where I was going with that. Yeah, economically they might be totally totally fit to have children um they just don't want to do it because their thinking is why would i bring a child into this world who 80 years from now they're going to confront 
a, you know, a disaster where sea levels have yeah. risen three feet, New York, Venice, New Orleans, they're all flooded, Miami. Yeah. You well, know, what? I, I can't, I can't do that to a child, right? I don't think people realize it. And, th- and this is why I'll just, I'll make this brief. I know we should, you and I should probably wrap this up, but this is why climate denialism drives me crazy because they, it's so misinformed by propaganda from oil companies. I mean, and we, we know that we, we, we follow the money, uh, yeah. think tanks and the heritage foundation and blah, blah, blah. Um, if you have those levels of temperature increases occurring in a human lifetime, when the planet itself is 4 billion years old, you know, you know that something deeply, deeply alarming is going on. You know, go up to Alaska and see the glaciers. The glaciers are melting. Yeah. I, I remember I remember running into way back in the day when I lived in Sacramento and I was waiting tables. You know, you probably shouldn't bring this up as a conversation about waiting tables, but I, I said, you know, somehow the glaciers in Alaska came up and the customer said, oh, well, you know, those those photos are fake or they're lying or something like that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What do you mean they're fake? And yeah. it's it's one thing to say that in 2006, whenever I was waiting tables. But right. if you said that if you said that in 2020 uh, with a straight face, I mean that that that's is what scares me. That's a partisan. Yeah, and one of the things, one of the degrees I have is political science, and one of the things that that both sides, I, I hate to use that term, but yeah. here it's actually true, right? Both sides have convinced a certain swathe of the population that our politics is essentially a game, which right. I think we're seeing, okay, it's not, <laughs> and probably never was, um, but I just think this is going to be my last comment with you, at least in the Internet, but I have a, a friend or something. I don't remember if it's a Facebook friend or somebody's Facebook friend or something, but I saw a video of them being a researcher in Antarctica, and they videoed what Antarctica was looking like. Yeah. And it's not what you would think. It's like I'm looking at exposed earth. I'm looking at green stuff poking out of the ground. I'm like, oh, my God. Right. Wow. <laughs> like, oh, my God. <laughs> it was horrifying. It was sure. literally horrifying. Um, Jesus. And they say, like, it was tropical back in the – like, they, they have – um, they've uncovered fossilized – um palm trees or something right over, yeah, that down time. there yeah because yeah, the, the continents moved they yeah yeah, you know. yeah um but uh well i i you know the last thing i'll say is that you know there is a way to handle that and i i think that whatever your position this this it's it's kind of a a sad commentary on our times that you, you kind of have one side that believes in evidence and the other the other side doesn't believes in conspiracy theories but um, yeah i think that i think that if you want a standard and if you want to resolve some of the partisanship you 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 got to have evidence man you got to have standards of evidence you got to look at peer review uh that's important when it comes to the whole vaccines autism debate mm-hmm. uh you know debate if you want to call it that um <laughs> 
you know, and I, I just, I, I don't, I don't think you can take seriously a perspective on something that's not kind of rigorously backed in that way. And you know, we need, we need to teach that. We need to teach that better in our schools, man. We really do. We, we need to do a better job teaching evidence. And it's not, it's not necessarily political. It doesn't need to be it's liberal just, or progressive. You know, if, but if this leads gotta, to that, you got it. It's gotta literally like evidence. It's literally like if this, then that kind of thing. Like literally just logic. You know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, we got to do a better Alrighty. Job. Steve, we could probably talk forever, but this seems like a good enough time to cut it off. Sure. But, uh, hold on just a second. I'm going to unhook the recording and I'll be right with you.